the woman, between his offspring and her offspring, if he had not done that, then the offspring of the woman be enmity between them. But most importantly, one of the offspring of Eve will bruise his head, the head of the serpent. And you, the serpent, shall bruise his feet. A blow to the head in ancient literature is a death blow, a blow to the heel is not. So this offspring of the woman is going to deal a death blow to Satan. But in the process, Satan will deal a, not a death blow, but a blow to this descendant. This descendant is Jesus Christ. He would bruise his head. The book of Romans says he will trample the head of Satan. So in other words, God is now promising that there will be one descendant who will put an end to Satan's reign and rule. In the process, he's going to deal a blow to this descendant's heel that was at the cross. He tried to kill him. He did kill him, but he rose from the dead. It was not a death blow. So all that is tied up in this statement that the descendant of Eve is going to defeat Satan once and for all. Now, we ask ourselves, did Adam and Eve understand this? Well, if we move on to chapter 4, Verse 1, we're told of the birth of Cain. And Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of God. And the words there in Hebrew imply that this is the God sent one. This is the one that may, or Eve thinks, will bruise Satan's head. So, yes, we think they got it, and yes, they thought it would be immediately. But it was not. So, uh, yes, we do believe they knew what God was talking about when he put this curse on Satan. But... The critical things here are that they refuse to confess their sin. From everything we know of God, 
done if they confess their sin, forgiven them, but they wouldn't do it. They would not do it. So the next time you feel tempted to blame somebody, remember Adam and Eve. Don't do it. Just fess up. I did it. Okay? I did it. And take the consequences. So we'll see uh, the importance of this lesson, especially when we get to the gospel lesson and the teaching that Jesus does there. All right, questions, comments on the Old Testament lesson? Yes. If they what? Well, there are so many... The question is, does Scripture say anything that actually tells us what would have happened if Adam and Eve had confessed their sin? Yes. There are passages all over the Scriptures that say confession of sin leads to God's forgiveness. Uh, even what we say in church. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, we don't know what would have happened and how God would have dealt with the situation if they had confessed their sins and he had forgiven them. Certainly, there were consequences for sin. There always are. Even though God may forgive you your sins, there are consequences of those sins. Uh, if you say something hurtful to another person, does God forgive you? Yes. But it may damage that relationship, okay? There are always consequences for sin. That the, the forgiveness of sins by God does not remove the consequences for sin in this world, okay? So if you rob a bank and say, Judge, I'm real sorry, why don't you let me go? Don't plan on it. Okay? There are consequences. And we have to live with those consequences. All right, anything else? All right, let's move on. 2 Corinthians 4.13 through 5.1. Now, a few prefatory comments here. One of the disputes in 2 Corinthians is the people thought that the Apostle Paul was weak and frail. Weak and frail. Paul himself admitted his weaknesses and was very bold in saying, I want you to believe the word of God, not because you see in me a strong person, 
but because the Word of God is strong. God has the strength, the Word has the strength, and you believe because of God's strength, not mine. I am a weak, frail, sinful individual. Believe the Word for the sake of the Word. He was having to make a case for that. In the book of 2 Corinthians, when he wrote to them a second time, because his opponents were saying, look at Paul, he can't be right because he's so weak and frail. So they were using this one way, but Paul used it entirely another way. And so, he says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. They're not doing it out of their own strength. They believe in Christ and they speak because they believe. Whether they're strong or weak makes no difference. No difference whatsoever. They are speaking out of the conviction of their belief and for no other reason. And then he tells us, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. All right, what is there real, the real foundation of Paul's belief that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, in the previous verses, before we get to these, let me read you those verses from 2 Corinthians. They're pretty well known. In fact, I think you're, we're reading them in church today. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. In other words, Paul is saying death is manifested in us because of all the danger we're in for preaching this gospel. But it's for the purpose of God giving you life. We're willing to suffer through the danger so that God gives you life. 
We speak because we believe so firmly that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And we want that gospel to come to you to give you life. We want that gospel to come to you and to many, many more people so it will be thanksgiving to the glory of God. So they are putting aside all the accusations that they're doing this for their own welfare. Paul says, how could we do that? If it was for our welfare, we wouldn't put ourselves in this danger all the time. No way. But we are in danger, and we do it because of our belief that's been worked and were in us by the Word of God, the Gospel, and so you can have life. That's the motivation for speaking even if, if, if it puts them in mortal danger. So, 14. No, 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. How many people here think it's fun to get old? That's the outer self. The outer self is wasting away. None of us are what we used to be. It's wasting away. But our inner self is being renewed day by day. In other words, the renewal that goes on in us daily by our baptism when we confess our sins and seek Christ's forgiveness, we are renewed. So that in spite of the fact that we might be wasting away on the outside, we are brand new every day on the inside. And not, nothing this old world has can take that away from us. It's ours. So that's what he's saying. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Think about that. He is calling. He is calling what we're going through now a light, momentary affliction. We can't always say that, can we? That's not always how we view it. But he's calling it a light, momentary affliction in comparison to the glory that's going to be revealed. Now, this is not the only place that Paul talks about that. 1 Corinthians 2.9 What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. It's so 
surpassingly great that what we've been through here, no matter how difficult, is going to seem like a light, momentary affliction. He also talks about it in the book of Romans, Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Okay? So he's trying to put what we suffer in this world in perspective to the glory that we will receive. And it will be spectacular and it will make you forget the rest of it. It'll be that good. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. An example was given of this. Think of Stephen. Stephen was stoned to death for his confession of faith. And the explanation goes like this. What he saw was rocks cutting, coming at him. That was the scene. That was the transient. But what does, he say, does it say he saw? Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. He experienced the things that were seen, but he saw the eternal things. That's a good example. How do you get through the things you experience in this sinful world? Keep your eyes on the eternal things. Jesus Christ. That's how you get through it. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, that's our body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So it's likening to uh, a pilgrimage. When you took a pilgrimage, you lived in a tent. But the abiding building was ultimately God, the temple of God. So even though this earthly pilgrimage ends and we are destroyed, our bodies die, there is the eternal. There is the temple of God. There is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we do not focus on this world that is wasting away, but on the gospel that lasts forever. All right? Any questions, discussion about that one? All right, let's move on and 
We'll see how the Old Testament lesson ties in with the gospel lesson. Mark 3, 20 to 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. All right. Um, I want you to skip down then and read verse uh, 30. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is not, we do not believe by accident. This is the way Mark wrote this. And they were saying he's out of his mind. And they were saying he has a demon. This was the opposition to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that his own family, it's, it, 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 we have to put this together, that basically his family heard what he was doing, that the disciples and Jesus were so sought after that they were not able to sleep and eat, so they figure he's lost it, and we're going to go bring him home. We're going to go bring him home. Okay? So they wrote it off to him being out of his mind. That was his family, the scribes. And, and by the way, we don't exempt Mary from that at this point. Okay? We don't exempt Mary from that. And the scribes, on the other hand, and the religious authorities, they went so far as to say he has a demon. So his family is doing this, and all of a sudden, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. So there are two accusations here. The one is that he is possessed by Beelzebub, that is Satan, and by the prince of demons, by the power of demons, he casts out demons. Those are the two accusations. Send, he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. All right, so he's saying it doesn't make any sense that I cast out demons by the prince of demons because he's not going to cast out his own army. He's not going to work against himself. He's not going to work against his own kingdom, his own realm. Because anybody that does that is going to soon fall. 
But notice his last statement. So that he's basically saying that didn't make any sense at all. But he does say, then indeed, no, then he says, uh, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. That part is true. He is coming to an end. And then Jesus says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus is the one who can bind the strong man. He's the one. So Jesus brings the kingdom of God who breaks into the realm of the kingdom of Satan and destroys it. So he is not a demon-possessed man in cahoots with Satan, but the only one who is strong enough in the power of God to bind Satan and defeat him. Jesus plunders Satan's house, his kingdom, his realm. Jesus, who has the Holy Spirit poured out upon him without measure at his baptism, is the one who will bind the strong man. So, basically, what Jesus came to do was to reestablish the kingdom of God. How does he reestablish the kingdom of God? He defeats the power of the kingdom of Satan. How does he do it? He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He casts out demons. Whenever the realm of evil is reigning, he destroys it. And ultimately on the cross, he binds Satan and plunders his house and delivers him a death blow to his head, just like Genesis said. And that's why these two lessons are chosen to go together. Jesus has now come. He is the descendant that is going to bind Satan and put an end to him. So this passage is very much a Jesus telling how he's going to fulfill the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. I'm going to bind Satan and deliver a death blow to his head, plunder his house, and bring the kingdom of God into the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Satan, Satan's realm which he has had since the first sin of Adam and Eve. So every time Jesus does something, it breaks the power of the realm of Satan. 
And basically, what he's telling us through the miracles and through his preaching is, there's going to be come a day when it's gone for good. I'm just showing you God is intervening now to break the power of Satan. There's going to come a day when it's gone forever. So, yes, it's all his miracles. It's all his teaching. It's his cross, death, and resurrection that deals the death blow. But he is continuing to break into the realm of Satan to this day. Every time a person, a child, is baptized, the reign of Satan is broken over that child, that person's life. God is still working. The world says nonsense. Putting water on a baby's head's nothing. Well, they saw Jesus' miracles, and what did they say? Nonsense. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. They missed it. They missed it. And if we're not paying attention, we'll miss it too. It's the kingdom of God when there are, peer, when there are people lined up ready to take Holy Communion. It's the kingdom of God when people come out of the world into the sanctuary to hear the word of God. It's the kingdom of God breaking in when you read your Bible at home. It's the work of God. And don't look for the big stuff. That's the way, the way God works. He's working quietly. It will all come to be revealed when he comes again, how he was working. When Jesus comes again, he's not going to declare that the President of the United States or the Chairman of the Chief of, uh, the chief of Staff of the military or any military ruler or any world ruler are the most powerful people in this world. God's going to say the most powerful people in this world are those that believed in Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to declare when he comes again. God is working to break the realm of Satan. There is a baptism. The word is preached. The Holy Supper is celebrated. The realm of Satan is broken. Okay? Now he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, 
The only way to deal with this is to take the last sentence first. Why did he say this to him, to them? Because they were declaring he had an unclean spirit. Now let's put this into perspective. The scribes were representing the people responsible for teaching the people about the things of God. They were not only missing the works of God that Jesus was doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. They went so far as to attribute his works to the power of Satan. Therefore, they were persistently teaching people that the coming of the kingdom of God, the work of Christ, in casting out Satan and his minions was in and of itself of Satan and not the power of God. They were on the threshold of committing the unforgivable sin, persistent false teaching and unbelief in what God was doing in their midst. The sin, the unforgivable sin, every sin that we commit is forgivable because Jesus Christ died. But if we reject the work of Jesus Christ, that is the only unforgivable sin. God has provided a Savior. If we reject him, that's the only thing he won't forgive us. And everybody always starts saying, oh, woe is me, have I committed the unforgivable sin. If you had, you wouldn't be here. If you had, you wouldn't be in church. Because by its very nature, it is a rejection of Jesus Christ and his work. The fact that you're here is testimony you haven't. The fact that you may worry about it is the best testimony you haven't. Because if you had, you wouldn't care. You'd go on your, about your business with not having nothing to do with Jesus Christ. You haven't. But he's warning them because they're getting awful close. He doesn't say he's done it. They've done it. But you're getting awful close. And his mother and his brothers came. Boy, they were going to seize him and take him home. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So he's surrounded by a crowd. He's teaching. 
and uh, his family can't get to him. So I'm sure somebody passed a message to him, your family is here. Jesus talks about family in an entirely different sense. And it's not just family by blood. Because the Jews were really hung up on that because they said, if we're descendants of Abraham, we're in. He takes this out of the realm of blood relatives and talks about a much bigger human family. Certainly not those who believed he was out of his mind were in this family, his family. Certainly not those who believed he was demon-possessed. They're not in the family. But those who do the will of God, they are in the family. No blood ties, but spiritual ties. The kingdom of God is breaking in on mankind. He's standing right there. He is. And there's a call for obedience. This call for an obedience is an outgrowth of fellowship and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes the kingdom of God. That's what makes the family. Those that do the will of God in faith and in fellowship with Jesus Christ. He broadens the family to all those that believe. To all those that believe as opposed to those that refuse to believe and declare his work is the work of Satan. So in this passage, there are lots of things going on. The whole thing, those that think he's out of his mind, those that think he's demon-possessed, that he does these things by the power of Satan, and he rejects all of that in his teaching. Satan can't be against Satan. I am plundering the strong man's house. Those that refuse to believe, unforgivable. Those that do believe, my brother and my sister and my mother. Radical? Yes. Can only be viewed. Such a departure from what the people thought and what their expectations were. So Jesus puts it all on sound footing of what he's going to do, what he is doing, and the implications. For our lives. All right. Thoughts on this passage?
kind of ties it all together, especially the Old Testament. Because Jesus is now doing what God said he would do. Yes, Al? No. And uh, plundering Satan's house is, um, of course, what Christ did. But the descent into hell is viewed entirely differently because it is not a part of the state of humiliation but the state of exaltation. Because he went there not to suffer hell but to proclaim the victory his resurrection victory. So by the time he got to hell, Satan was plundered. It was over. It was over. Now, the full plundering <laughs> will be when Jesus comes again. Yes, Jim. So on the, on the eternal, unforgivable sin. Yes. If, I mean, that seems like it's a specific... Very. But somebody who is, let's say, an atheist, an active atheist that is openly projecting there is no God, but if they ultimately come to faith. Yes, and that's why uh, the question is on the unforgivable sin. What about the person that says they don't believe, work against the faith, but someday, but, but one day come to faith? It happens. So here's the thing. I, I don't come up to you and say, Jim, uh, you've committed the unforgivable sin. You've had it. Okay? No. Because the unforgivable sin is persistent. Persistent unbelief throughout life. Can there be a change? As long as you're in this world, yes. As long as you're in this world, yes, the power of God is stronger than you. The power of God can work in anyone, no matter how. Look at Saul. He worked against the faith. But he was converted. We never give up on anybody. And sometimes it's impossible to talk to them anymore because they're so recalcitrant. But our prayers for them don't stop. That God will work in their hearts and bring them to faith in Jesus. As long as we're in this world, God's patience and love is here and can work. So we don't give up on anybody. Nobody. All right, other thoughts, questions? All right. Let's close. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.